There's a story, uh, an interesting little story of a woman who found herself standing at the pearly gates and St Peter Peter greeted her there and said, these are the gates to heaven, my dear, but you must do one more thing before you can enter. And the woman was very excited and asked of St Peter, what do I need to do? And Peter said, you just need to spell a word. What word, she asked. Any word, said Peter, you can choose, it doesn't matter. And the woman promptly replied, the word I'd like to spell is love. L-O-V-E. And St Peter welcomed her in and asked if uh, just for a moment she would mind taking his place at the gates while he took a break. And so the woman was left sitting in St Peter's chair uh, when a man approached the gates and she realised to her surprise it was actually her husband. What happened, she said, what are you doing here? And her husband looked at her for a moment and said, I was so upset after your funeral when I left, I was in an accident. Did I really make it to heaven? Uh, Not yet, she said, you must spell a word first. And he said, oh really, what word? And she said, Czechoslovakia. Now clearly, he was a a lady who had some issues with her husband. But what does it take to be a good husband? There's a question for us to think about as we approach this passage and think about what it means to actually find a spouse. What does it take to be a good husband? In that same vein, let's talk about some, some of the more humorous answers to that question. Here's a couple of suggestions or a couple of things I found uh, through the week I thought I'd share. What does it make to be a good husband? A good husband always spills things in the same spot, so there's only ever one mess to clean up. A good husband earns more than his wife can spend. A good husband masters the art of communication so that he can strategically say, "Uh uh-huh, is that so? And you don't say in the right places in any conversation with his wife. A good husband has learned all his children's names so that he doesn't have to say, hey, you there, or do what I do sometimes and cycle through them until you get the right one. A good husband knows when to eat without complaining about the food. A good husband always puts the toilet seat down. A good husband remembers his wife's birthday, wedding anniversary, and never uses the same excuse for anything two times in a row. Well, there's a bit of advice for some of the guys, and I can give advice to the guys who wouldn't deign to give advice to ladies. So, ladies, you can work your own stuff out there. And I treat this topic a little bit uh, this morning with some brevity, Uh, Choosing the person to who you will be married to for life is a serious business though, isn't it? It's a very serious business and God ordains that we join with someone else for life to the exclusion of all others. And many of you who are listening in today and have been married will perhaps in these moments think back, and I invite you to think back, uh, to those early days of courting. What was it like when you first started dating or going out or or whatever the language was in your time with the person that you uh, married to. But my suspicion is that even as you think about those early days, none of you followed the example of Ruth in finding a husband. Probably uh, if you did, um, you would be ridiculed, abused or even worse, you might even be arrested. 
And yet we have a plan here described in Ruth chapter 3, devised by Naomi, executed by Ruth with the potential promise at the end of this scene that Ruth's about to have her problem of widowhood dealt with in the most magnificent and culturally appropriate manner. The passage that, uh, that I read earlier starts with this fantastic but dangerous plan put forward by Naomi. Some time has passed in the story. As Matt said last week, uh, Ruth had uh, been gleaning in Boaz's fields through two harvests, the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, probably over a period of about two months, something like that. And beautifully sown through this story, there are kind of whiffs of relationship, little tiny hints that the authors put in that something might happen. And so the anticipation builds up and then wanes away again. And all this time, Naomi's been doing some thinking behind the scenes. Perhaps she was, um, it might be argued, she was trying to figure out how to provide for herself in her old age. But let's be a bit more generous than that. Let's suggest, as the text suggests, that Naomi was thinking about Ruth and her situation and how to cater for Ruth's needs when Naomi, as an older woman, passed away. It was one thing to be a widow, as Ruth was in a strange land with Naomi. It would be much more difficult if she was there alone when Naomi was gone. And so Naomi lays out some steps to find a husband, some really practical things that Ruth is uh, invited to do. Step one, let's just walk through these. Step one, go and have a bath. That's always a good strategy um, if you want to meet someone for the first time. And I actually remember one of the very first dates I went out with Diana on. Uh, it was a hot day. We were going out in the evening. I had to go for a drive to meet where she was. And yeah, I was toey all day. It was one of those, you know, looking at your watching, is the time come? Is the time come? And so I went out for a run just to fill in some time, a few kilometres out in the bush. And of course, you come back all hot and sweaty. Not a great strategy to go from that to a date with a person that you wanted to impress. So have a bath. Good advice for anyone who wants to impress somebody else. Step two, put on oil, the equivalent of perfume. Perhaps we don't need to emphasise this in our day and age. Step three, put on good clothes. The NIV translation says put on your best clothes. But actually, the original language uh, suggests here that Naomi says to Ruth, put on normal clothes. In other words, not mourning clothes, not the clothes of grief. Put on clothes to say that your time of mourning for your husband is over. Step four, head to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz know that you're there until he's had something to eat and drink, presumably so that he's in a good frame of mind. And then step five, when he lies down, go and uncover his feet and lie down. Now, again, the translation here is a little curious. Again, in the original language, Ruth's not being asked to position herself at the foot of the bed where she might be kicked by Boaz if he stirred in the night. She was actually literally being asked to go and lie with him as a wife might next to her husband. Now, you can see why I said a moment ago, this was a risky plan. Apparently, this was a customary and a non-verbal manner in which a woman might request marriage in the ancient Near East. And Naomi knew this because you'll see there in the text, after you've done this, she says to Ruth, Boaz will know what to do. 
Now, from a practical application point of view, ladies, if you're thinking this might be a good strategy to apply, let me counsel you against it in our context. Sometimes the Bible gives us examples to follow. Uh, sometimes uh, there are examples not to follow, and this is probably one of the examples not to follow. And guys, if you're thinking of following Ruth's example, then um, I might be called on to provide a character reference for you before a court of law, and I'll be happy to do that. So here's, here's the tip, don't go to this place. It was customary in Naomi's culture, and it was still risky. It was still risky because you can imagine what might have happened if Boaz had stirred in the night and sat up and, and then established that it was Ruth there and said to her, how dare you? You're a Moabite, you're outside, you're, uh, you're acting in an entirely inappropriate way. Here I am, a wealthy landowner, and you're a helpless widow trying to climb up the social ladder. He could have humiliated her terribly. He could have, uh, because she'd not secured a marriage contract, he could have accused her of being an adulteress and the full weight of the old, uh, the old law would have come down on her head in that sense. Or worse still... If Boaz had been a man of lesser character, he might have taken advantage of that situation to satisfy his own sexual desires and then accused Ruth of entrapment or even have had her charged with prostitution. The fact is, as we look at this passage, there's enormous risk for Ruth. But remember uh, from, uh, from our previous studies here in the book of Ruth, there's something else going on behind here too. God's hand is at work and we mustn't lose sight of that. You can imagine uh, the drama that could be made of this and I guess Hollywood probably has made a bit of this. I haven't watched too many movies, uh, not secular movies anyway, of this story. But uh, here we see two people lying in the darkness of a Palestinian night. It's, it's no wonder that in verse 9, Boaz asks the question, who are you? Remember, there's no lights. It's deathly dark. Uh, and here, even in this place, we see a demonstration of their integrity and an example of their integrity even in this space. So what was it that made Boaz write for Ruth? Well, there's a number of observations that we could make and perhaps should make about uh, the rightness of Boaz for Ruth uh, in her situation. The first is that he was a man of right reputation. If you go back to uh, verse 1 in chapter 2, we discover that Boaz is a man of good standing in the community. He was from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing, the scripture tells us. A reputation's a really important thing, isn't it? I remember back in the days when I was teaching, one of the last conversations I'd have with the students at the end of the year, particularly when they were grade six students moving off to high school, was a conversation about reputation. A good reputation is worth gold. It's one of the hardest things to get and one of the easiest things to lose. And I still think that's good advice. The thing that causes some people to struggle in this regard is that reputation is actually rooted in character and it's hard to forge or fake character. But Boaz was a man of good character. 
The second thing we might say about Boaz is that he was a man of right relationship for Ruth. In a remarkable sense for the time and perhaps a rare find indeed, he was a man who came without baggage. He was a man who was right for Ruth. The third thing we might say about Boaz is this, he was a man of right resources. Now I don't mean to say that Ruth was kind of like a gold digger who was looking, uh, looking to hook up with Boaz, she'd struck the mother load so to speak, but his wealth had been generated through honest business dealings. We see in his interaction with his own, uh, his own workers a real sense of godliness in that interaction, that actually speaks volumes for his character. He was a man who had, had accumulated his wealth through honest, reputable means. I was working years ago with a woman whose husband got involved in cattle duffing. You don't hear of that too often nowadays, but I guess it still happens more than we realise. And I remember the shame and the embarrassment that she felt when she had become inadvertently associated with a man who was accumulating wealth dishonestly. And the fourth thing we might say about Boaz is this, he was a man of right resolve. We see in his response to Ruth's approach that he's going to do the right thing even if it disadvantages him. And there's a really important life lesson in that too, I think, for us as followers of Christ. Sometimes we will be called upon to do the right thing even though it hurts. That's what integrity really is all about. Boaz may have been delighted with the thought of marrying this young widow, but he knew there was another guardian redeemer or kinsman redeemer who stood in line first, and that person needed to be given the opportunity to take Ruth in marriage first. Boaz might have missed out, but he knew that doing the right thing was more important than having his own way. It might have been a hard call, uh, but he was prepared to make it. And there are occasions where we are faced with similar tests of integrity, where doing the right thing will come at a cost to us. And it can be hard to disadvantage ourselves, but we see how God honours Boaz's integrity and honours those who are prepared to walk in integrity. There's a little book on my library shelf with the title The Gospel in the Old Testament and I alluded to this a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about how Ruth's commitment to Naomi was in some senses a foreshadowing of conversion in the New Testament. Well there's a number of things here, some parallels if you like between what Boaz does and what Boaz did for Ruth and what Christ has done for us and I think it's worth reflecting on some of these things for a few moments too. First of all, Boaz offered Ruth the possibility of a new home. She was a, an outsider. She was from Moab. She was from outside the covenant, a foreigner, despised potentially, but Boaz offered her a new home. And in a similar way, Christ offers us a new home. John chapter 14 verses 1 to 3 is a text that is etched on my mind because um, Colin Buchanan put it to music and, and sang it on the CD player in our car for miles when we were travelling with our children when they were young. It says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me and my father's house. There are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back 
and take you to be with me that you may be where I am. It's every ounce of my resolve not to sing it because it's been so deeply ingrained. Jesus offers us a new home, a new home for those who trust him. Boaz also offered Ruth the possibility of new hope. She was, as I said, a foreigner. She was from outside the covenant. She was without hope. And hear what Paul says about us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. He says, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners in the covenants, sorry, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Christ Jesus has given us a new relationship with God, even though, like Ruth, we were outsiders to the covenant. And there is new hope for peace in this relationship with God. For as Paul goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus came to preach peace to those who were far away as well as to those who were near. And in this new state that we find ourselves as Christians, the scripture speaks of the hope there is in eternal security for no one can snatch us from the hands of God. We are held fast and secure in God's hands. There's hope in the gift of the Holy Spirit. We've spoken about that through our studies in the book, uh, the book of Acts. For the Lord is always with us no matter where we are and what we do. We have an advocate speaking on our behalf in heaven. We have a friend who is closer than a brother. And third, Boaz offered Ruth the possibility of new happiness. Now, despite what we might think about Christianity, happiness is actually not something Jesus offers us. God never says, follow me and your life will be filled with happiness. Jesus does, however, promise joy, which goes much deeper than surface enjoyment of life, which we might also know when we walk with God. I like to think that joy and contentment in life are somehow linked, for when we are content with the Lord, we are less satisfied with the world and when we're less satisfied with the world we are more likely to be able to experience the joy of the Lord for our circumstances are not what we focus on we focus on God and this chapter finishes with another one of those lovely reversals that we've seen constantly through this book Naomi left Bethlehem the house of bread when there was a famine she returned when there was a harvest as Ruth was about to leave Boaz, he asked her to hand over her shawl. He filled it with grain, six measures of grain. We don't know how much that is, and said, take this home. And once again, Boaz has demonstrated enormous generosity. But that's not the reversal. The reversal is this. In chapter 1, verse 21, Naomi lamented her situation by saying, the Lord had brought her back to Bethlehem empty, and Boaz in giving this grain to Ruth, said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. The blessings and provision are not just for Ruth, it's for Naomi as well. No longer is Naomi empty. Once again, her life will be filled. 
And this points us to the power there is in the redemption of God for this confluence of human action because Naomi put together a plan and this divine intervention, the sovereign hand of God that we've been reflecting on, uh, has have come together and the widow has been restored and the promise of life ahead is being revealed. And back in the Old Testament, in the book of Joel, Joel chapter 2, verse 25, God says, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. The goodness of God can overcome any catastrophe, the deepest calamity, the greatest shame, and bring complete restoration. Let's pray together. Gracious and loving God, we worship you today as the God of reversals. We're reminded of that greatest reversal, the reversal that um, had its origins in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve chose expediency over obedience and succumbed to the temptation of sin and in so sinning established this awful reality that has infected every heart from then forward. We're reminded of the Garden of Gethsemane where there was a reversal when our Lord Jesus chose obedience over expediency and overcame sin through his sinless life and death on the cross. You, Lord, are the God who, through pain and suffering, won victory. The God who, through adversity, births triumph. The God who takes even the darkest of circumstances and brings light and love and restoration. And again today, Lord, we thank you for the message of the book of Ruth, for the evidence of your sovereign hand that we see at work in Ruth's life. And we recognise, Lord, that this is not just an historical account of your activity in the past, but an indicator of your activity in the present. And we thank you that your sovereign hand is still at work in our circumstances, in the circumstances of our personal lives, the lives of our family, the lives of our neighbourhood and our community. We thank you that you are the God who works through our circumstances, whatever they are, to realise your purposes. And so we pray today that we might humbly submit to you in what we are doing, what you are doing, uh, so that we might know that no matter what we see or what we experience, that there you are ultimately, even in your discipline, working out your righteousness for the good of your people, for the glory of your name. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.